This morning, as we sang that last song, um, I was struck by the words that the only fitness He requires is to feel your, is for you to feel your need for Him. And so that's what I want to start off by praying for this morning, is just that you and I would feel a need for God. Because you may be feeling a whole bunch of other needs. Uh, you might be hungry, tired, hot, but our greatest need this morning is to feel something, feel a need, feel an emptiness that only He can fill. Will you pray with me? God, the song continues in there that you are the one who gives us this need. You are the one who allows us to feel this emptiness. And God, only you can fill it. And so God, this morning, allow us, every single person in this room, to feel a need for you. God, as a preacher, I can't give that. Only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. God, I rely this morning. We rely on you to do us good. We need you this morning. May your presence be felt by your spirit and through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have heard from me on this stage updates about how our porch project is going. I don't have a recent picture. I got an old picture. That's, that's what the, the porch used to look like. But I've given different updates as the porch project has continued. One of the more recent ones was the fact that the neighbor on the north side of my house might have, all right, most certainly did get paint on his motorcycle because of my hands, because of what I did. I was spraying in the house and spray, the overspray landed on his V-Star motorcycle. And you know, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> kind of a big deal. He's pretty, pretty big into it. But in all of that, he showed me a ton of grace, forgiveness, love. And our, our, our friendship has continued to grow. Um, but I got a phone call from him yesterday. And I could tell that things were not okay. His voice was pained uh, as he spoke. And the news was not good. That's the neighbor on the north side, what he's going through right now. On the south side, the, the neighbor on the south, he, he came by my house and he saw it when, when it was in this kind of disarray and we were pulling that stucco away and, and he knew I would need help at some point with my stucco. And he's done stucco for years, you know, he, he did it in Vegas and down in Vegas, that's all they have down there. Um, but he, he offered his assistant. So he came over last, would have been last Saturday, put the first kind of scratch coat on, the first layer of concrete. Wasn't, wasn't built up enough, so he had to come back Sunday. So I leave last Sunday, leave the service, leave after I'm done with work, go and talk with him, and he's just helping me. Just gracious neighbor, friendly neighbor, just helping me with the stucco. And he stops in the, I mean, literally as he's ready to just throw some more concrete on there, turns around and says, hey, I got a question for you. I've had this question for 28 years. I want to ask you, is God mad at me? And I said, uh, t tell me more, you know, t where, where's this coming from? He said, well, I was raised Roman Catholic. I was a faithful disciple 
of the Lord. Went off to Vietnam, God answered my prayers, was able to come home, got married, had a son. My son died. He's a three-month-old in the crib. He spoke with pain in his voice, tears in his eyes. That news is not good. If there was something I would want my neighbor on the north side of my house and the neighbor on the south side of my house to hear, if I could get them to hear anything, it would be what we're going to talk about this morning. They have needs that only God can fill. And this morning, we get to hear about how God can do that. Today is a good day. Today we celebrate Easter Sunday in the middle of July. (laughs) Maybe you've heard it called Resurrection Sunday. Um, This is a great day. This is a cornerstone day in our faith as followers of Christ. We've been kind of rolling through this section of John. It's called Suffering and Glory, how we've titled it. Suffering and Glory, Jesus Christ's procession to the cross. We've looked at events leading up to Jesus' death. We've looked at Jesus being crucified, being killed on the cross. Last week, we looked at the burial of Jesus. The silence. Steve Steve spent time talking about the silence that was felt on earth as Jesus had died. So many people confused, wondering, what is next? He also talked about the roar of heaven as Jesus laid down his life. This morning, there is good news, and the tomb is empty. For those of you who recently joined us, or church, or God, uh, hopefully you hear something that's beneficial. I grew up in the church, a Lutheran church. I had no idea what Easter was all about. (laughs) No idea. No understanding of why Jesus died. This whole raised thing. He is risen. Didn't know what that meant. <laughs> kind of thought it was kind of you know, creepy when people would kind of respond as the, as the pastor would kind of say, hey, he is risen. Everybody, he is risen. It's like, I'm, I'm getting nervous here. I don't know what's going on. But the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential. This, this idea is captured in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 14 through 19. This isn't just something tacked on to the cross. This is critical. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We shouldn't even be here. There's no reason for us to come here on a Sunday morning and gather and worship if this isn't true. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Those verses capture like, this resurrection is a big deal. Easter Sunday is a big deal. I had no idea why, but hopefully you'll hear this morning why that is. 
We are kind of tracking through John, and we've reached John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. You can open it up, look on your insert in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen. You can open up your own Bible, uh, one in the pew there. We've got the first 10 verses, which outline not so much the resurrection as the empty tomb. There's no Jesus. Where did Jesus go? Okay, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, uh, referring to John, the, the writer of these words here, the one whom Jesus loved. He always kind of uses that phrase, uh, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter. And reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Looking at just the first two verses, the discovery of the empty tomb. The the words there, kind of the stone being taken away, it's different. It's not the word we would expect. The tomb, the 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 stone was rolled in front of the tomb, and we might expect the the thing was rolled back. But the verb there is is literally meant taken away. And I, I got some notes from a guy named Leon Morris, and he said, when the stone was put in place, it was rolled. This seems to imply that the stone, the, the current verb, lift up, seems to imply that the stone was lifted out of the groove in which it ran. This form of the verb is unusual and may be intended to give it an air of finality. Just God is taking that, boom, taking it up, pushing it away. And Mary comes across and discovers this empty tomb. And her, her first thought is, what's your first thought? If you were to go, anybody that you died and you looked in their tomb or their coffin, and they're not there. Robbery, grave robbery. Somebody took the body, and that's Mary's uh, response. We do not know where they have laid him. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She assumes grave robbery. She runs and gathers the other disciples. The other disciples come. And isn't this great, just the the account? How, like, John kind of talks about this kind of journey to the tomb. Like, yeah, yeah, Peter, he set out first. But I got there ahead of him. Like, it's spoken like a true guy. You know, like, if some other girl, you know, if it was, like, two girls, two women going, they'd talk about, like, what they saw on their way to the tomb. But for the guy, it's all about like, dude, Peter left first, but I got there ahead of him. Isn't that great? You know, it's just, it speaks to like the authenticity of the scripture. Like, why would you include that, John? I mean, seriously, it must have happened because no other reason would you just put that in there. It's just spoken like a true guy. And a guy named Ritterboss, he just says, the detailed manner in which they went to the tomb is described. Obviously, it was not a race. It's designed to put all the stress on the reliability of their testimony. It's like, dude, he puts it in there because that's how it went down. That's how it really happened. 
And it gets to the point in verses, the end of verse 8, 9 and 10, where they don't just come and look at the linen cloths. Something happens. Scripture says they believe. What kind of belief is it? It's a belief in the evidence there, and it's a belief in the resurrection. Do they understand everything about it? No. (laughs) If they had known all of that about the resurrection, they would have been more accommodating when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to the cross, I'll be raised. But what? They, They didn't understand all that. They were trying to prevent this at times from happening. But they believed. Something happened. They saw the evidence and they were reminded of Jesus' teaching. In John 2, verses 18 through 22, it says this. So the Jews said to him, said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Okay? So they didn't have like an understanding of the scripture, of resurrection, that Jesus was going to fulfill that. They didn't have that. It says just in the, in the passage there, they did not understand the scripture. They yet did not understand the scripture. So they weren't trying to find a situation and say, all right, Jesus is our guy, so we have to craft up some resurrection. No, the resurrection happens first. They happen first. They see that, and they believe because of Jesus' words. And then they're able to go back and understand the Old Testament's teaching on this. Look at what Leon Leon Morris says. It is clear from the New Testament that the early Christians viewed the resurrection as foretold in the Old Testament. But this passage in John shows plainly that it was belief in the resurrection, resurrection that came first. Believers did not manufacture resurrection to agree with their interpretation of prophecy. They were first convinced that Jesus was risen, and in light of that came to see a fuller meaning in some Old Testament passages. That's John 20, verses 1 to 10. Okay? And that is big. Empty tomb. Man, to be a fly on the wall of that tomb as Jesus is resurrected. Okay? That's our passage. I want to kind of jump off now and explain some of the implications. Why is this a big deal? Why is this so meaningful for the follower of Christ? Next week and in ensuing weeks, we'll talk about appearances that Jesus made to different people. Um, but I want to jump off at this point and explain some of the why. The big question, why? Why is this a big deal? Because it's a question that I never had answered growing up. Implication number one of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection, and there's more than this. Okay, I'm going to give you three. There's more than this, but it's at least these three. Okay, So this is a great starting point. If you've never heard about the resurrection and you have no understanding, this is a great starting point. Number one, the resurrection proves that God is able to make all things new. In Revelation 1.5 it states, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So how how did the story start? How did this thing get started? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God creates. This is not God making all things new. 
Like in the implication number one, I'm talking about God making all things new. No, in the beginning, God just makes new things. He just, he just breathes and boom, stuff comes into existence that never had been existed before. Okay? The chief of his creation in this is Adam and Eve, whom he places with authority and in, they got to tend the garden. And why is that? Because they're created in God's image. Just like every human being, you, me, they are the, the chief there. So we, all human beings, share this place of prominence, prominence in God's creation. What happens? Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and 19, God says, See, I've set before you today life and death, or life and good, death and evil. Therefore, choose life. In the garden, Adam and Eve got the tree of life. Choose life. They don't. They rebel. And we, as part of that, I mean, by birth, just being part of that human race, we are just like them right there. But he gives us a choice. And everyone, everyone, since Adam and Eve, every single one of us, with the exception of Christ, has chosen death and evil. Some of you might be thinking, when did I do that? I don't, I don't remember being, being given a choice. You know, When were those options made clear to me? I want to take you through a couple pieces of scripture that explains this. Scripture says, what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to human beings, plain to you and me. This is what the Bible says. What can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we are without excuse. We ought to have recognized God's eternal power and divine nature. We ought to have thanked him for giving us life. We ought to have worshipped him and praised him as the only immortal God. But we didn't. You and I, we went astray. We did whatever we feel like doing with no thought of God. As a result, all of creation, the Bible says, all of creation was subjected to futility. All of creation is in bondage to decay. So remember, God creates life. And as a result of this sin, decay, futility, more specifically, you and I will die, die as a result of our choice to sin. Our sin, our preference to do whatever we want results in evil and death. So God makes new things, okay? God creates. Those new things decay. Thankfully, we have implication number one, which I've stated here. The resurrection proves that God is able to make all things new again. That's the beauty of this. What God has done once, God is able to do again. So God makes new things. They become sick, diseased, decayed, futile, diseased, whatever your word is there for what you're experiencing that doesn't seem right and you don't like it, and it hurts, and it's painful, God is able to make new again. The Bible talks about this person being, you and I, being born a second time. God creates us, we're born, 
We choose sin and die, and we can be born a second time or born again. I don't know what, you're, what you associate when you hear that born again. Some of you might not have good thoughts come to your mind. But I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5 to hear about being born again. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at those adjectives that that describe the living hope. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Doesn't that sound like life in the garden? Through the resurrection, that is the living hope that you have. That you can have the undefiled, imperishable, unfading hope. And just the opposite. Perishable, defiled, fading. That is our life experience, isn't it? Every day, crap happens. Things happen. Sad news comes. But listen to this. As Jesus is able to go from death to life, God is able to do that in all things. God has the power to do that in all things. The resurrection shows that. It proves that God can make all things new again. And that has huge implications for you and for me. Listen to this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Isn't that just water your soul? I mean, isn't that... That is good news this morning. Another one. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All you and I need to do is to feel our need for that. To feel our need. To be born again. To be made anew. God can do that. He has the power to do that. He is able to do that. If he can bring Jesus from death to life, he can renew and restore and rebirth anything and everyone. And as Revelation 1.5 says, he's doing it. He's making all things new. So implication number one, the resurrection proves that God is able to make all things new. Implication number two, the resurrection proves that the cross has been successful. Another way we've stated around hope here, the resurrection of Easter Sunday proves that Good Friday worked. That's our proof that Good Friday worked. Well, what did Good Friday claim? Because again, growing up, I didn't know what Good Friday was all about. You know? Had no idea. So what did the cross claim? I want to give you a couple things. Two things that the cross claims. One, it claims that God would justify us. Some of you are thinking, man, we're going to la-la land. Justify. What does that mean? What is that all about? I want to talk a little bit about that. Justification, and here's kind of a definition for you, for those that like definitions and kind of clear speak here. Justification is the process by which we can receive a right legal standing before God. Can I read it again? The process by which we can receive a right legal standing before God. It's almost too good to be true that we, w- we could possibly be justified in front of God. 
Because, right, he gives us two options. You got death and evil, life and good. Choose wisely. And we choose death and evil. We choose that against a holy God, a perfect God. One that we should have worshipped. One that we should have recognized and been like, oh my gosh, you are eternal in power. Your nature is divine. There's no one like you. There's no way we should have a right legal standing before God. How can this happen? It's only through the blood of, blood of Christ. It involves two main ideas. I got them on the screen there. Through his blood, through Jesus, through the cross, through what happens on Good Friday, our sins are forgiven. They're taken away. Ephesians 1.7 states, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins. We will no longer be, be declared unrighteous because of our sin. Not only that, a second thing, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed or given to us. Romans 5.19 states, For as by the one man's obedience, the, many, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. We'll be declared righteous before God. That is, that should blow your mind this morning, that you could possibly have a right legal standing before God. On the cross, a great exchange takes place. He takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. Romans 5, 9 summarize, we have been justified. This whole thing that I've been talking about here on number one, about the cross proclaim, God would justify us. Romans 5.9 says, we have now been justified by his blood. Number two, what else did the cross claim? The cross claimed that God put Christ forward as a propitiation for our sins. Tons of big words here on Sunday morning, huh? How are we doing? Justification and propitiation, big words. This is the idea that Jesus would, God, God needs to judge sin. Because he's just. The Bible claims that he is just. Just like anything that you've been wronged, you want justice. You want it to be squared. You want it, things to be made right. So God is going to do that. And he wants to do that with you and he wants to do that with me. Well, Jesus stands in our way acting as a propitiation. Doing two things. Diverting the wrath from us and receiving the wrath upon himself. Any judgment that would come towards us as a result of us just saying, God, get the heck out of our lives. Jesus receives that on our behalf. That's him being put forth as a propitiation, as a substitute for our sins. The resurrection proves that these two things, among others, and there are a lot of things on the cross, that these things have been successful. And the question is, how? Of course, show me how. How is it? that the resurrection shows that these things are taken care of. Great verses in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. This is probably the, the, my favorite insight of this, this week's study right here. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Capture verse 20. May God, 
who brought Jesus from the dead, how did he do that? By the blood of the eternal covenant. The, the resurrection didn't just come after the bloodshedding of Friday. No. The resurrection comes about by that blood. This is, this is just where my mind went just bonkers this week. It's like, all right, okay, so, so Jesus died, okay, he shed his blood for my sin. He dies as a result of that shed blood. But that same blood that was shed as a sacrifice for sin, so we could have a right legal standing with God, so Jesus could divert any wrath from us, that sacrifice, that blood that was shed, is the means by which he's raised from the dead. That just blows my mind. And, it's, and perhaps, I, I hope I'm expressing it clearly enough. Because that is how we know that Good Friday worked. That this blood, this blood that was shed on Friday, was so perfect, the sacrifice was so perfect, that that is the, why the resurrection happened. The sacrifice was so perfect. The obedience of Jesus was so perfect. The faithfulness was so perfect that that brought about the resurrection. It was by his blood that he was raised from the dead. Your job, my job this morning is to believe that, to feel your need for him, to feel your need for that in your life, to place your hope in him. So implication number one, resurrection proves that God is able to make all things new. Number two, proves that the cross has been successful. Implication number three, the resurrection proves that God has authority over everything, even death. So my first neighbor's phone call, the guy that lives on the north side of my house, um, the pained voice, and this is, this is the first time he's called me. In the, in the four or five years that he's been living next door to me. First time he's ever called me. Calls me up. Says, my grandma passed away. And he asked me to pray for him. He's only asked me to pray for him two times. I guess maybe that's because he doesn't believe in God. But he's only asked me to pray for him two times. First time was when his grandma was hospitalized. And this was the second time. He was stung by her death. I've never seen him cry. um, But he was emotional. And there was pain resonating in his voice as as he talked to me on the phone. The neighbor on the south side, um, that fateful moment of him walking in to his three-month-old's room and seeing his lifeless body in the crib, praying that somehow, by some way, God might bring him to life. Seemingly, it was as if God didn't hear a father's cry for his son's life to be spared. He concluded his stuccoing work and shared a final thought. He said, 
I haven't talked to God since. 28 years. So do you think God is angry with me? It's okay if he's angry with me because I'm angry with him, so I guess it goes both ways. Man, I wish they could hear the good news this morning that death is not the final authority. God is the final authority. Death stings. It's unnatural. It is not natural. God doesn't desire death. It's not what God desires for a 93-year-old grandma or a three-month-old son. But listen to the hope that we have in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, meaning this is how they would judge crops. They'd grab some fruit, the first fruits, and whatever that tasted like, they would be able to understand if it's going to be a good crop or not. But Jesus Christ is our first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death will be destroyed. Every person that you've lost will one day be resurrected. Why? Is that just for the followers of Christ? No. There'll be a resurrection of the... Bible talks about there being a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Everybody who's ever lived will be raised to life one day. Why? So that the last and only and biggest authority is God. And the important thing for us this morning, again, do you feel your need for Him? That in life and in death, we need Jesus. So I want to ask you three questions. Man, today is an unbelievable day. The tomb is empty. We serve not a dead Jesus, but a risen, alive Jesus. And so this, this morning, three questions as way of application for you. Based on implication number one, will you let him make you new again? Maybe for the first time this morning. Jesus can make you new again. He will send his spirit to make you new again. Number two, will you allow the cross to be your success? The resurrection proves that the cross is successful. Have you adopted it as your success to bring you into a right legal standing with God? So that he would be your propitiation. Number three, will you come under the authority of God so that he might be your all in all? Did you hear how I phrased that? It's intentional. Will you come under his authority so that he might be your all in all? Now, I just got done telling you that he will be the final, supreme, end all authority. He is the authority of all authorities. 
Will you do that now willingly? While you have the opportunity, while you have the invitation, he's inviting you to come under his lordship, his godship, his headship. Will you do that willingly? This morning, God says to you and to me, I have set before you two choices. Death and evil, life and good. And he urges you, choose life. As a way of conclusion, I've got a quote from a guy named Bart Ehrman. He grew up believing some of this. Uh, later in life, renounced it. But he, he gave this quote as a way of stating how he's against. And I actually want to use it as a way of stating how I'm for the resurrection of Jesus. He says, what about the resurrection of Jesus? I'm not saying it didn't happen, but if it did happen, it would be a miracle. The resurrection claims are claims that not only that Jesus' body came back alive, it came back alive never to die again. That's a violation of what naturally happens every day, time after time, millions of times a year. What are the chances of that happening? Well, it'd be a miracle. This morning... No doubt. I'm asking you to believe a miracle. Though he died, yet he lives. Will you pray with me? Father, I know this morning there was a lot of theology, big words. It has taken me um, 10 years to come to this point of appreciating your resurrection, the fact that you were raised to life again. It's hard for our minds to grasp. It's a miracle. It's inexplicable sometimes. Hopefully, God, I pray that by your Spirit, you have moved in such a way that we feel a need for you because only you make all things new. Only you make the cross successful. God, only you are the final authority, even over death. Though he died, yet he lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.